you know, what is that old that old song? You know, you and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals. Yeah, you know, yeah. let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. I mean, like you talk about little <laughs> slice of nihilism thrown into uh, your, you know, Yo MTV raps or whatever that was playing on. Like, goodness gracious. Welcome to the Stand Firm podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, here today with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Anglican Church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How are you guys today? Great. Yep. Good, Nick. So it's time for the Stand Firm Super Bowl preview. We've got Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs trying to repeat as champs, while on the other side, Tom Brady goes for his ridiculous seventh Super Bowl win in 10 tries. Who you guys got? Our fans want to know. Huh. Any team that Tom Brady plays for is my favorite. <laughs> are, are, are they going to win? I don't know. I mean, I bet, I bet, I bet Tom Brady wins, but I hope. I've not. been talking about this. He's, he's a month and five days older than I am, which is just such – it's it's it, sometimes that's a challenge and a, and a judgment, but more than that, it's just – it brings warms my heart because it says, you know, you too could be, <laughs> could be, and you've chosen a different path. Uh, you're not, you're not the old man yet. So. And eaten only raspberries. <laughs> how, how old is Tom Brady? Asparagus. He's forty three. He's forty three. Okay. Yeah. Right. So he, um, I have a. So interestingly enough, the person that I'm getting physical therapy doing apparently has some connection to him or whatever. So we were la- we were talking about how, um, uh, for my leg muscle, uh, we were talking about how these people are able to stay fit for so long. And, you know, with all the violence that so she said, she said that, I don't know if she's speaking directly about him, but it's common for these athletes to at a certain age to not do anything physical at all until they have a 45 minute deep tissue massage, like period. Like we're going to go out wow. for a, a jog. We're going to go, you know, um, golfing. Like we're going to go have 300 pound people blindside us. You know, uh, we play football like it's all. And I was like, well, that that explains a little bit of how you could last that long. You know, <laughs> so you have a, basically a, a, an entourage of um, of doctors and physical therapists following you around. Uh, you know, I remember when I was in uh, college, uh, you know, hearing about how Jerry Rice got like, you know, an hour deep tissue every day. And I was like, why would someone do that? And now I'm like, oh, oh yeah, yeah. That's, that's why. <laughs> half that's- an hour in the hot tub, half an hour in the cold tub. We gotta yeah, stay man. limber. I'm at the age where I get sleeping injuries. Yeah. I wake up in my neck, <laughs> just like I bed, like I just lifted all this weight. I just slept <laughs> wrong in my pillow. You just need a deep <laughs> tissue massage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true. Well, so last I'm going week, for the oh, sorry for the Buccaneers. Going for the Bucks, huh? Yeah, that's it. Wow, I sort of think they're going to win too. Although that Chiefs offense is not to be messed with. Anyway, now onto the real issue at hand: sex. Last week we talked about sex. We thought we'd talk more about sex this week, as our culture becomes more and more sexualized conflating love and sex as jd pointed out last week the christian sexual ethic becomes more and more odd sounding to everyone who hears it sex as solely a gift to husband and wife sounds crazy this wonderful thing but something that is to be reserved for this very specific relationship a lifelong marriage between one man and one woman now obviously there are some that see that assertion as something like a puritanical misinterpretation of what the Bible really says, especially with regard to sex between people of the same biological sex. But what we wanted to take as our topic today is the why of all this. Let's assume for the sake of argument and our discussion today that 
though we can review that argument if you guys want to, that the Bible reserves sexual intimacy for lifelong heterosexual marriage. If that's so, why has God decreed it to be so? Um, I think if you go back to Genesis 1, you get a sense of it. Or in Genesis 2, you get a, a sense for it. You know, God um, takes a woman from the man that he made, um, and then he gives this kind of instruction from now on. Man will leave his, his father, his father's house and cleave to his wife and two which shall become one flesh. And so you have this kind of at the very heart of, of, of the human person, a desire or, or a, um, a being drawn to the other and then an attempt to reunite with, with the, for bad, lack of a better word, your, your other half. And that that's supposed to, not supposed to, it does picture, as we've said many times, Christ and his church. So, so that just uh, think about what happens with, with Christ. We are both his body and his bride. We're both um, we're bound up in him in a, un- in a, in a union, a spiritual union, um, and yet we're distinct, uh, distinct persons. We're not Christ, we're his bride, and, Christ, and, and, and yet we are part of him. Um, and so the, at the very, the very beginning of creation, Jesus, God's already telling a story about Jesus and his, and his, and his love for uh, his church. And he tells that story particularly through the distinction of sex, through two, the two male-female sex, uh, uh, male-female distinction, uh, sex distinction. Uh, so to, to, to take away that distinction, to, to say you have a male with a male or a female with a female. Or an unmarried couple. Or, right, or an, an uncovenanted unmarried couple, you, you completely distort the story. Now it becomes either, uh, now it becomes Christ and himself, or it, become, it becomes the church and herself. And and uh, because the whole the whole sexual design turns in on itself, and you have instead of agape, you have narcissism. You have you have the male seeking the male, uh, an image of himself, and the female seeking the female, the image of herself. Um, or you see an untethered union. They, they're not they're not the father has not brought them together as one flesh. They're they're swinging out there and without any kind of promises to made to each other, right? Um, whereas in Christ, we know that we, that our union is guaranteed by his promise to us and, uh, and his promise to us guarantees our security within him. So it just, it just distorts and ruins the entire, the entire system to, to want to create a same sex or unmarried sexual union relationship. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of things going on there and I agree with you, man. I think that's, um, that's really well said is that, you know, that, that in the image of God, uh, we have this sort of radical assertion that it's neither male nor female, but male and female um, together uh, image God, you know, let us make man in our image uh, from back from Genesis one and two. And then we have this, this um, picture that God is neither male nor female, but is somehow represented by the relation of the two. And so the relation, you know, the theologians call this relational ontology, that somehow in the relation between men and women, we see a picture of God himself. And so we should be unsurprised then that that picture is sort of um, equality, you know, and and yet differentiation, you know, the father is not the son, the son is not the father, neither the spirit, you know, is the old uh, uh, seven point statement on the Trinity goes. And so we have at the very base level, the reason that men and women are to be prioritized in in that relation um, is that it is uniquely constituted as the image of God. Now, 
extending that on, we have the that not only do they relationally image God in their interaction with each other, but they actually become procreators with God. And you know, this a big part of a big part of the modern re- discussion about sexual ethics, as it were, has been um, is has resulted in the relative freedom people have to to choose when or or if they even have children from this union, because that's been something that yes, there have been attempts to um, have contraceptives and abortions, you know, since um, if, well, time immemorial. I mean, the Didache writes about um, abortion. We know about um, p- babies being exposed in the ancient world. I mean, it's not something um, surprising, but by and large, the convenience and the accessibility was not uh, universal the way it almost is now. And so we have this relationship that is inbound, hardwired into us, uh, this desire, the sexual desire, that's a God-given gift that for the most of human history has at the very least carried the the promise, if, if not the threat, of, of a child coming into the world. And that seriousness has has necessitated some um, societal structures being put around it, or else we have, um, you had anarchy, you know, you had sort of, um, and, and this is why, I mean, you know, books written on this that are not even Christian books about how monogamy, I think one of the titles we've mentioned before, how monogamy created civilization, you know, or how how um, how marriage, you know, domesticated um, otherwise feral men, you know, and we have, so, so we have this relational reality that's procreative with God and at the heart of it, which we even see as part of the, um, argumentation, interestingly enough, for Roe versus Wade, was that there's an ex, there's an understanding that women physically, at the very least, bear bear more of a uh, hardship in this, the fruit of this sexual relation than men. You know, that the, one of the arguments about why women should have the right to abortion is because they did not have the right to not be pregnant the way men had the right to not be pregnant. And so therefore, for equal rights to prevail, they had to have an equal right to not be pregnant. And it, interestingly enough, I think this goes back to part of the curse, because it's not that women and men wouldn't, it's not that Adam and Eve wouldn't have procreated before the curse, but you had that part of the, the loss of the trust in God, that this was in fact a good thing, this relationship between men and women this procreative relationship, you had the curse against Eve, which was that your desire would be for your husband, but he would lord over you, right? And that you would have pain, your pain in childbirth would be magnified. Um, and then of course, for Adam, it was that you will toil your whole life um, thinking that your your job will bring you um, health, wealth, and success, and you're going to go back to dust, right? So these are the curses. But I've thought a lot about this because I think that part of the tragedy of unmarried sexual sort of desire is that when it results in this um, in the natural uh, uh, sort of fruit of sexual intimacy, i.e. children, and you don't have that covenanted loving relationship that is resting on the trust of God and Christ, well, then you, of course, you have resentment. And of course, you have this sense of, of why me? You know, why am I the one that has to be laid up for nine months and have to sacrifice my body for the sake of this child that you didn't even want? You know, that sort of brokenness at the heart of the non-covenanted, non-gospel secured relationship, I think, in part, is why the redemption of the world, as seen in Christ, is mirrored in the bride imagery of a husband and wife, as Paul says in Ephesians 5. And it's precisely because the mystery of Christ in the church is revealed in the husband and wife, because there you have the restoration of all of this relational ontology, all of this procreative um, joining with God, all of these incredibly self-sacrificial things that can only truly be undertaken when you have been the recipient of Christ's sacrifice for you. 
And I think outside of that, we see, um, well, we see what we see. <laughs> you know? well, all of this is, is like Martian to, to the most, most people on the street who, who are not Christian anyway, and even some who aren't Christian, who are Christian, because we've been taught um, from youth, very small youth upward, that the, the chief end of life is to find the self and express the self. And and if anyone gets in the way of the self of self fulfillment, they're 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 they need to be you need to get away from them. So people enter into marriage or enter into a relationship or or whenever they whatever kind of sexual relationship they enter into, it's it's for that purpose. It's so that I can be happy and I can find fulfillment and I can uh, have pleasure and and the the inner me can be yeah. can be satisfied. So um, the idea of me getting into a marriage for you, for my wife. I mean, to, to of me going into a covenant relationship where whereby I promise to die to myself so that my kids can live and that my wife can be happy. That's what? Why would you do that? And my wife's right. desi- deciding to give up her body essentially yep. um, and and bear you know, six children and have having all of the physical effects, all, all of physical side effects of that. For the rest of her life, the scars, the the uh, the things that women worry about. I don't care about the things women worry about. That's a total self surrender, yeah. and and it's that kind. Of, it's a kind of self surrender that's really. I mean, I'm not saying it's not possible, but it doesn't ever. It doesn't manifest itself in relationships that are chosen for for reasons of self, um, which are what those other kinds of relationships are. Uh, that's yeah. right. It strikes me listening to you guys talk that the common phrase for sex that is carried on outside of what god calls sex to be carried on inside of which is a lifelong monogamous marriage between a man and a woman the phrase is commonly uh casual sex and it strikes me and i wonder if you guys would agree that that's a phrase that has no meaning that there is no such thing. I mean, uh, St. Paul writes clearly in 1 Corinthians 6 that I mean, he's, he's writing specifically about, about a prostitute, but he says that any man who sleeps with one has joined himself to her. And then he writes uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 18, this, this, I think probably the closest thing that we get to a scriptural reason why the Lord would reserve sex in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, he writes, flee from sexual immorality Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And that can mean, I mean, I don't know the full scope of what that means, but it means at least that there's some sort of special class here of sin that is uniquely deep in nature. And that the idea that you would casually do this thing with somebody else is an impossibility, that, that it is by definition not a casual thing. Well, I think I think that part of the lie, um, you know, of the culture, and this is nothing new to ours, but I think that there is a an attempt to silence the voice of God in this area by by sort of desensitizing people to um, sex. I mean, we see this is actually like a, a specific action of um, a lot of what passes for quote unquote sex education, even in the public schools. It's like the earlier you can get the clo- the earlier you can desensitize people to any sort of mystery or sanctity, then the better. 
better because um, any sense of, uh, well, sanctity around this is just a heirloom of a previous, you know, sort of magic time when we all believed in God or something like this. I mean, Aldous Huxley nails this as he nailed many things in Brave New World when he, they, um, they walk through the, basically the kindergarten and the preschool that were engaging in erotic play. Um, and he was, um, he was, he was reprimanding one of the young boys that didn't feel like playing. He'd rather play with like a car or something or a, or a spaceship. And he was like, no, no, get back to what you need to be doing because part of the, part of the desensitization of the society required a, uh, a ratcheting down of any sanctity surrounding the sexual appetite. And we see this happening um, all around us. You know, this is, this is nothing new. Um, you know, then one imagines the apostle Paul, you know, walking into Corinth or Ephesus or these places was uh, confronted with people who had a very different view of sex than we do. But of course, that's when it gets down back to the fundamental uh, argument, which he talks about, um, as you mentioned, Nick, in the prostitute argument, is that the Christian confesses that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, you know, that we're not, where our bodies are not our own. Um, and particularly in marriage, you know, we used to say, what is the old 1928 prayer book? You know, my body, I give to you, my life, I lay down or something like this. And again, that is a radical and nonsensical thing to an unbelieving world. And yet to the believing world, that was um, a paradigm shift that, that reoriented everything around uh, the purpose for our bodies, the purpose for our life, and, and fundamentally the, the things that we would both live and die for. And like you said, Matt, I mean, this idea of marriage being a self-sacrificial endeavor that through the through the the witness of the of of the husband sacrificing for the wife and vice versa that there would be a picture of the image of god in christ for the world well again it's unsurprising to me that people who don't believe in that see something altogether different when in the um relationship between men and women um but i think that is why nick you know going back to saint paul he he talks about the the reality of God's design for human beings is that sex was an intimate and powerful thing. And the fact that we can deny its intimacy is clear. You know, you could go to, to the movies, you can go to the strip clubs, you know, people are trying to deny that, but you can't deny its power. I mean, that's one thing. Like people can say all they want about how we might be prudish or we might want to, you know, be um, all these, these um, old fashioned ways of viewing sex, but to argue that it's not powerful is just not the case. When you look at the amazing amount of energy, money, and industry devoted to, to nothing more than sex, you know, the porn industry, the, I mean, look at the whole Jeffrey Epstein thing, for goodness sakes. I mean, they had the powerful men and women in the entire world being in this ensnared in this, in this web that had, it's, as far as we know, little else to do than, than sort of a sort of sex, you know, uh, uh, relationships. And, and that's not alone. I mean, that's, that's what's so funny about it is when people point to Christians saying that all we're doing is obsessed with sex. I was like, do you realize that like some, some unbelievably large percentage of internet search traffic and the mon money that comes through it is devoted to nothing other than naked people having sex on a screen. And yeah, that's, we're not the only ones talking about it, you know? And I think that's because like all other good things of God, that when they are misdirected, the power is not taken away. It's just the goodness of them is removed and they become things of incredible destruction. You know, it's like we say all the time, sex, money, and power. These are wonderful gifts, what we would say blessings of God, but in the hands of the sinner, of the idolatrous sinner, then um, power becomes an incredibly terrible thing. Money is an incredibly soul destroying thing and sex similarly so. And that's, um, so we won't, we won't stop saying it and we won't be surprised that people don't want to hear it, 
but you know, for those who do hear, it can be a very liberating and freeing, um, freeing message. I was reading a post on Twitter this morning from a, a feminist atheist person who's um, decrying homeschooling, and she was saying, "Well, the, these children are being brought up in these conservative households, and they're not being exposed to our uh, more modern way of thinking." And as we were just talking, it reminds me, you know, it's it's not just that people are because we're sexual beings being drawn by lust outside of a Christian understanding of marriage. I th not to be a conspiracy theorist, but the that's breakdown. Jay's yeah, corner. <laughs> but the but the but the breakdown of the nuclear family, the destruction of the family is is has long been the goal of yes. of secularists. I mean, just go back and read, you know, Plato's Republic with the idea of not having families, but just having male, men and female on their own males and females in their own camps, and they get together for procreation. But then the state takes control of the kids and raises the kids in accordance with what the state wants. That's, so right. that's like that's like the that's like the the secularist, you know. Dream. That sounds like a <laughs> sci-fi. That could no. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, I mean, but that was you know play, that that aspect of the republic was something that Marxists built on. And, you know, all, no, for sure. Yeah. The, and they, until yeah. recently, was on the homepage of the Black Lives Matter website. Yes. 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 So, so there's a there's a sinister, I, I would say agitation aspect to this where we're, we're being we're, we're where our sexual natures our our natural or i guess fallen lusts are being are being fed by those who also want to destroy the institutions that god created a creation so you're it, 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 there's a there's there's more to this than just individuals loving the self that's right um it's also a campaign to destroy yeah, that's I not conspiracy sure. theory, unless you think the Apostle Paul's a conspirator, is conspiracy theorist, <laughs> yeah. because it's he says specifically in Romans one when he begins to lay out what happens when people exchange the truth of God for a lie. They worship the creature rather than the creator. They exchange the glory of the immortal for the for the material and worship creeping things and birds and reptiles. And then the it gets progressively more anthropocentric, meaning uh, self-directed. And so the first fruit that he puts into the march of idolatry is debasement of your body in ways that God didn't expect them to be. Now, in specific, he talks about same-sex relationships, but what he hasn't, one imagines he has similarly, um, you know, any sort of, um, you know, fornication or any sort of um, sexual misuse of your body outside of God's um, design, which would be dishonorable, you know, against nature. You know, again, we go back to the to the big picture here, is that we don't we don't highlight specific aspects of our culture and just um, with a blinder towards sort of the way that it all fits together, and 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 what I mean by that is that sex is fundamentally just a question of what you do with your body. What you do with your body is is limited either by or, or is is defined either by full expression of your inborn desires or to a certain degree, suppression, if not combating those desires. And then the question then becomes, says who and why, right? And that's the entire question of the Old and New Testament. I'll tell you who says God, and this is why. And it's not just with sex, although sex is a great desire, but it's with, you know, that's why they had dietary restrictions. That's why they had um, clothing restrictions. You know, that's why God was, as C.S. Lewis says, hammering on a people for a millennium or more, um, so that when Jesus came and actually claimed to be God, then they, they were confused, not because he claimed to be God necessarily, but because they had been told for so long there was only one. Then they were like, oh, wait, you know, 
well, he, we got to figure this out, you know, because it had been so long embedded in their, in their lives and in their, in their, in their practice. And so that's why, like, when people think that all we're doing is talking about sex, you know, that, that they're missing, well, I try to have a longer conversation with them because we're simply talking about to the extent to which you limit or try to limit any of your, as it were, quote unquote, natural desires for anything. And why do you do that? And on whose authority and to what end? And for the Christian, we say we do that because they're fallen. We know they're fallen because God has designed, God has told us what they should be. And to the end that he knows better than we do about the best use for his creatures. And, and that's why we do it. Because, you know, Augustine said, you know, our difference between the animals is not that we don't have, we have dramatically different desires, is that we actually have the, the possibility of transcending them. You know, we're not just dogs, you know, we're not just, um, you know, what is that old, that old song, you know, you and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals. Yeah, you know, yeah, let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. I mean, like you're talking about little <laughs> slice of nihilism thrown into uh, your, you know, Yo MTV raps or whatever that was playing on. Like, goodness gracious. But there we go. That's the alternative. Because when people say like, well, I don't agree with your sexual ethic. I'm like, OK, well, that's fine. You don't have to. You know, it's not like I'm the king or something or the emperor. Um, but what's yours and why? You know, as I tell people all the time, we came back from from Europe, as far as I could tell, for a non-Christian father of like a like a high schooler. Um, There's basically two questions: uh, consent and contraceptive. That was it. Consent was the only question. It wasn't with whom, how many, how often. That was none of your business or anyone's business because it didn't matter. And then contraception, like the one thing that we know that you shouldn't ever consider doing unless unless you consent to it, of course, is have a child because God forbid, you know. And as far as I can tell, that's the competing sexual ethic of our time. So I'm happy to put those two up in front of each other, in front of a youth group or in front of a high school, you know, debate stage and be like, you pick your poison. Here's, here's the vision, the beatific vision, the vision glory. Let me show you a more beautiful way, says Paul. And, you know, not all will listen, but I'm happy to paint the, the contours of these two different worlds and let the Holy Spirit draw people into, into what's promised to be life, uh, yeah. much and more so. Yeah. That's the key because it's not for nothing that the same almighty God who said, I created this wonderful thing, but I want to reserve it for this one particular relationship. This is the same God who also said, I send my son into the world to save sinners. And the, the you can't have the one God without the, I mean, you, you want to have the good news and to have it, you need to accept that there is a God who proclaimed it and who, actually did in fact set up a way for the world to work which as you said is to our benefit but even if we don't understand it even if we're job and we think why is all of this happening to me and the only answer we ever get is i'm god and you're not even if that was all we get which as i hope we've spent this half hour saying we actually do get more than that but even if i'm god and you're not was the only answer we ever got the second half of that sentence is I'm God, you're not, and I save you in my son, Jesus Christ. That's right. And that's a why that's worth everything else. Amen. That's exactly right. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's many, many laws. <laughs> Imagine being, being an old covenant uh, person and, and trying to explain or figure out why God had 
these things named as unclean and not these things. And I mean, you, you know, half the laws would be inexplicable until Christ. Maybe not totally inexplicable. You just they don't don't know why. What's the big um, deal about chewing the cud? Yeah, what do I, yeah, I would like to eat a rabbit, but um, the rabbits don't eat, drink, don't chew cuds. Anyway, yeah. So yeah, all these things would be complete mysteries, and yet you still because he is God and he's wiser, more knowledgeable, obviously, omniscient, uh, than we are, you you submit, um, you submit to his thing. Right? You know, it's interesting. Uh, we're we're preaching through John right now and we're in the we're in John chapter 18 and uh, and Peter where he steps forward with his knife and lops off I think he's trying to kill Malchus, but he just, he missed him and he got his ear. <laughs> um, but, but the, yeah, Alistair Begg says either he's a, he's the best swordsman in the world or he's like, he's one of the worst. He's in that. Well, maybe that guy yeah. just has an incredibly yeah. large ears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that whole story though, Peter, the whole story of Peter. Right hey, there, big ear. We finally, somebody finally got you. We finally <laughs> cut it off. <laughs> yeah. But that whole story from the beginning of Jesus saying, Hey, you're all going to desert me. Peter saying, no, I'm not. Um, yeah. And then, and then them all wanting to, you know, take, storm the castle and jesus saying no we're not going to storm the castle um and then finally peter thinking he knows best and you know drawing his sword and trying to storm the castle it's it's, it's all a story of our base fallen assumption that we know better than god how we ought to do things mm-hmm. and if he's not listening to us or, or acquiescing to our wishes then there, there's something wrong with him yeah that's no, good that's good i mean i'm still struck but by, by matt how you're saying that um you know, for for unbelieving ears, or perhaps even some of our um, colleagues uh, in other churches, you know, what we're saying sounds so hopelessly um, archaic. You know, sort of like hopelessly idealistic in some sort of you know 17th century Victorian way or 18th century. Um, but you know, I, I'm going to stick by it because <laughs> I think that you know, I think that what we're looking at with respect to back to the original question about why God limits men and women to this, you know, unique covenant of relationship and not other ones is that it does something to give back um, the world to men and women in his creative way. And so what I mean by that is that it values and compensates for the physical travail that women under and undergo when they are, you know, sexually active in this case, um, because it puts them in the framework of a relationship that says, well, I signed up for this, you know, come what may. I mean, you know, we all know people who've had uh, pregnancies that have, have um, you know, all but killed the woman and sometimes do. But, you know, if it doesn't, then it sort of, you know, can really cripple in many ways, um, you know, for, for life. And yet, in God's economy, that was compensated for by this, this covenant picture, uh, this gospel picture of men and women reflecting Christ in the church. And then likewise, on the flip side, you have all of these strengths that men have, you know, um, and all of these sort of uh, appetites and desires that when let loose upon the world can be very destructive, you know, I mean, your desire for fame, fortune, and and uh, whatever the case may be. And yet when directed towards the actual care and, and uh, you know, self-sacrificial loving of someone else, then all of these things that we are we are otherwise called to do, you know, work and pleasure and 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 pain and sacrifice and 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 life become not just not just duties, but something meaningful and and good. And I think that's what that's what we see when we see that that relationship not grounded in the person and work of Christ, 
for the church and then reflected in men and women, well, then it's not that it's in, inherently evil. It's just that it's not a, a picture of the redemption of the brokenness that entered into the world that Christ has purchased for the man and the woman. And I think that's, you know, I can speak from personal experience. I mean, that's that's something I'm living into, in, however imperfectly. But, you know, I wouldn't have been able to say that with such feeling 17 years ago. But I can say it more now than I ever have before. And as I watch, you know, my children grow older, as I watch myself grow older with with Liza, you know, it becomes more and more of a of a miracle and an incredible source of devotion and joy and gratitude uh, that God has, in fact, set it up this way. I was talking to a, a man online about well, it was about a month ago or maybe longer, and he was talking about he he felt like a failure. He's, I think that's 40, 50, something my age. And the reason is he really always wanted to be a pastor. Um, but then he got married young um, and they started having kids and they, they, the financial strain of going to seminary was something that they wouldn't be able to afford. So he just got a regular job and, um, and worked and took care of his family. And, and he, he had felt all along that he disappointed God, that he, that he should have you know gone gone forward with the with with the seminary um when all the while what he did was he he sacrificed his own desires to take care of his family and uh, you know and he i guess he wasn't seeing that was pleasing in god's sight you just you just were like you act you acted as you should like christ does for the church you gave up your own ambition sacrificed your own will and you redirected everything in your life to take care of your wife and kids that's exactly what jesus does for us so that was a, that's a beautiful thing not a terrible thing you you actually followed god's law um and in a beautiful way amen this is, this is obviously a conversation that could go on a lot longer. I wonder if I could presume to take sort of the final word and agree with what both of you just said and to wrap it up in a way, just to say specifically that in this case, perhaps even more clearly than a lot of others, in faith and in Christ, the law becomes the promise. We, we hear this, you can't have sex with anybody but your wife, outside of faith as a t terrible law. Like, what do you say? I can't go out and have sex with anybody I want right now. But in Christ and in faith, I mean, thank God, I don't have to, you know, figure out who it's going to be tonight that makes me feel like a man. You know, <laughs> who, who, who is going to make me feel okay about myself this weekend? I get to rest in the love of my wife that the the Lord has blessed that relationship and has, has called me to remember that this is a picture of his love for me that I don't have to go out and reassert my masculinity every time. I can rest in what has been proclaimed, what could sound like a commandment or a law, but in faith can be received as a promise, a great gift that we can enjoy. That's how I wanted to stop. That's all the time we have this week. We do appreciate you listening. I hope that you'll want to keep the conversation going with us. You can be in touch with us either by rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes or sending us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com. Thanks as always to Matt Kennedy and to JD Koch. I'm Nick Lannon. We will be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. 